This week on the Backtable Podcast. I wouldn't say that people necessarily need to avoid those foods or avoid any food that's high in oxalate. And the reason is because we can control the amount of oxalate that our body absorbs, that, that is absorbed from our gastrointestinal tract. So I don't often tell people that they have to live for the rest of their lives without eating oatmeal or bulgur again or spinach again um, because of this power that we know of to modify the bioavailability of oxalate. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. It's a pleasure today to have Dr. Chris Penniston joining us as our guest. Dr. Penniston is a senior scientist at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where she's been with the Department of Urology for 18 years. She's an international authority on diet and kidney stones. As a registered dietitian, she looks after patients in an integrated fashion through a multidisciplinary stone clinic at the University of Wisconsin. In addition to this, she has her PhD and has been very active in driving the science behind kidney stone prevention. Dr. Peston, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Manoj. It's a pleasure to be here. Maybe we could start off by a little bit about yourself. How did you decide to become a dietitian and what brought you to our world in urology? Well, I had earned a bachelor's degree in history, actually African-American history, and went out in the world and worked for a couple of years. And then I decided to return to school. I ended up getting a second bachelor's degree in dietetics. And the reason was I became very interested in health and I didn't think I wanted to become a, a medical provider, doctor, if you will. So I just decided that nutrition was something I liked and I would pursue it. And Turned out I was really good at the biochemistry and some of the other things. So I got that bachelor's degree. And then in Madison, we have this wonderful university hospital. And I knew I wanted to stay in the area. And so I decided to apply to an accredited internship for dietetics here at UW Health at University Hospital. And I also applied to grad school at the same time because I knew that if I wanted to practice at a university hospital as a dietitian, I would need a master's degree. And that's required now of all dietitians. I think next year is the first year it will be required. But at university hospitals, it's been kind of a thing for a long time. So I did the internship, went to grad school, and really liked research a lot. And after my master's degree, I just continued on and got a PhD. And it was then that I decided that I didn't want to necessarily follow in my professor's footsteps and become an academic researcher. I wanted to do both. I wanted to be a clinician scientist. And I had been working four hours a week in the metabolic stone prevention clinic at University Hospital all the while I was earning my PhD. And so I got the PhD and, and Dr. Stephen Nakata, who's the chair of the Department of Urology, said, well, I suppose you'll be leaving us now to go pursue a, a position as a professor somewhere. And he said, well, what if I could create a scientist position for you in our Department of Urology? And then you could continue doing the stone clinic and researching stones. And by that time, I was kind of already hooked. I realized that there was a lot of interesting chemistry in stones. And I was a dietitian already and had been seeing patients and developing those relationships. So it was an easy decision for me to say yes. And you mentioned accredited internships. 
Are there any internships that specialize in kidney stone prevention? That's a great question. The answer is no. And in fact, there's not a whole lot of education that dietitians and prospective dietitians get with respect to treating kidney stones with with nutrition therapy. I think because there's so much attention placed on the big diseases, diabetes, and of course there's a whole, you know, bunch of nutritional strategies for that, cardiovascular disease, some of the GI diseases. I think in part because so much attention is focused on that, but also because I think kidney stones are kind of complicated <laughs> and I'm not sure that that's an excuse for why it's not taught. All I know is that most dietitians come out of their programs without ever having learned anything about kidney stones and nutrition. So if one of our uh, urologists in the audience was hoping to start a clinic with a dietitian as their partner, how would one identify that individual and how would one help educate or fill the gaps in the education that might have been there during their schooling? Well, first, I really hope that urologists do look for dietitians to partner with. I just don't think I know from hanging around urologists for so many years that there's not enough time in a day for a urologist who's got a busy clinic and a busy surgical practice to do the kind of therapy that's really needed. And even me, I mean, I see a lot of patients in a day, but I still, not as many as a urologist do, so I still have time to do the counseling. First, I would say that a urologist should look in his or her hospital and uh, make contact with the director of clinical nutrition. All hospitals are required to have registered dietitian nutritionists as part of their accreditation with JACO. Now, not all hospitals have to have outpatient dietitians, which is probably what you would want in a stone clinic, but many do. And in fact, many of the academic settings where probably some of the audience members are have more than enough dietitians to meet their minimum requirements. And so there may be some available FTE if you go to your clinical nutrition director and say, hey, I've got this stone clinic, it's multidisciplinary, here's all the evidence for the role of nutrition therapy, I really keep this person busy, let's work on that. So that's one idea. If that doesn't work, and typically it doesn't because there's not as many dietitians as there are you know, need for, then I would suggest finding a local dietitian to whom you could refer your patients. And in both cases, whether you get one in hospital or find one in the community, you're undoubtedly going to have to expose that dietitian to education. And if not educate him or her yourself, look for some sources to do that. And there are sources. There's a lot of publications and a manual that we use in the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics called the Nutrition Care Manual. And there's a chapter there about kidney stones and nutrition. So those are two suggestions that I have for getting a dietitian on your practice. The only other way is to actually include a dietitian and, and reimburse that dietitian through your practice. That may not be appealing, but as you may or may not know, dietitians are not reimbursed for most of the nutrition therapy services that we provide by Medicare. And so our, a lot of what we do is considered value added. Well, Dr. Peniston, no question it is value added, but it sounds like there's other, a few other logistics to work around. So in the interim, maybe let's see what knowledge we can share with our audience today. Perhaps we'll start with not prevention, but stone passage. Patients often come in and say, you know, I saw on the internet, I'll drink a liter of Coke or I'll do some cod liver oil. Uh, there are a variety of things that I suspect have been tested with time, but maybe not with science. Are there any things that you've heard of that may actually work to help kidney stones pass? Not many things. 
unfortunately, even the, the idea of pushing fluids while passing a stone, while many of my patients say that that's what helps them pass stones, there actually isn't the best evidence for that, that that's actually going to hasten kidney stone passage. But I think it would be a good instinctual sort of thing to do uh, when you're trying to pass a stone. But drinking Coca-Cola, taking cod liver oil, doing any kind of supplements or anything like that to hasten passage, there's no evidence. Well, the patient fortunately has passed their stone. They're in the clinic now saying, what did I do wrong? How do I prevent the next one? What do you say? So my first comment is going to be, you didn't do anything wrong because many times diet is not the reason the patient formed the stone. I like to point that out because I think it manages patients' expectations. I think if we insist on blaming the patient or trying to find a dietary cause for every type of stone and every patient's stone, we're going to miss the mark. Not all stones are caused by diet. Many are caused by genetics. Many are caused by underlying medical conditions that have systemic influences that predispose one to stones. Some are caused by medications. And probably most are caused by a combination of all of those things. So I like to tell the patient, you, you didn't do anything wrong, but there might be something we can optimize or something we can improve in the diet. And so what I consider myself is sort of a diet detective, if you will. So the patient comes to me, they've probably passed a stone, as you said, or had surgery. And one of the first things I want to do is try to figure out if diet even likely contributes to their stone risk. And the way I do that is by looking at all the same diagnostic things that a urologist does. I'll look at 24-hour urine results. I'll look at relevant blood values. I'll look at medical history and medications. But then I also do a very comprehensive diet assessment. And over the years, I've kind of developed a stone-targeted assessment, if you will. But given that there are many types of stones, more than just calcium, for example, and given that there are many different risk factors, there can be a lot of things to explore. So I like to consider myself the detective that's either ruling in or out a dietary cause for stones. And often I can find something, like I said earlier, to improve, even if I'm not convinced it was the actual reason they formed the stone. Does the <coughs> detective work take a formal structure in terms of dietary logs or recall? And then the other question would be for the individual who perhaps doesn't want to do a 24-hour urine collection, are there empiric recommendations that you would recommend for everyone? Right. So I'll take the second question first. You know, there's a lot of debate about whether a 24-hour urine collection, whether it should just be one or whether it should be more than one and whether it's really effective or useful. And I think it is. I think that the real power of it, though, is in monitoring the effects of therapy over time. So I do think it's useful for patients to do a 24-hour urine collection. I mean, hopefully it won't be their one and only because you'll want to test how your therapy is working on their risk parameters. But if a patient doesn't want to do it, or if their insurance won't cover it, or if the urologist simply doesn't think it's necessary, I can still do a lot. I can still do a very targeted diet assessment. And I will sometimes ask people to bring in diet logs, but there are some pitfalls to that. Any dietitian listening might relate to this, but when you tell a patient beforehand that you're going to be looking at the certain things in their diet or that you're going to even just be looking at their diet, they will often change how they eat. So I could say, Manoj, here, here's this diet log, you know, spend three days filling it out and then we'll talk about it when when you see me next. 
I've already planted in some patients' mind some terror there, you know, like they're going to get in trouble with the dietitian if they, they admit what they ate. So I don't do that very often. What I like to do is on the spot, I like to query the patient in a couple of different ways. I'll query them about what they ate over the last two days, if they can recall. And then I'll ask some very targeted questions about how they habitually eat. So, for example, based on the information I got from the 24 or 48 hour recall, I might say things like in a typical week or in a typical month, how many times do you have X? And then I go through my list and I'm able to piece together what I really want is a picture of their habitual diet. I don't even really want to know so much how they ate on the day of their urine collection, because that, too, is something patients will alter their behavior for when they do that. So I really like to get kind of an on the spot, no predispositions, no fear. And also dietitians can relate to this. And I think urologists, it's good for them to know this. For many patients, diets are very personal. How they eat is really personal. And their dietary habit, and you want to try to get at things that they don't want to admit to you, and things that they feel guilty about, and you want to get portion size. None of that is possible if the patient feels you're going to judge them. So it's really important, and dietitians are especially equipped to do this, to give the patient the space and the the feeling that that he or she is respected no matter what they say, because you always want the truth and, and not just something that they want you to hear. So those are some strategies that I have found useful. Does one size fit all for fluid intake or what do you set as the target for each patient? So you asked about empiric suggestions, like if a patient doesn't do a 24-hour urine, uh, my answer to that was I'll do a diet assessment because I still want to be targeted, right? I still want to provide some sort of personalized approach rather than, you know, saying, well, here's eight things that most people do. I'm not sure any one of them might work for you, but do them all. I still, even in the absence of 24-hour urine, I believe I can elicit information that will help me target my directions. And let's say fluids is one. Let's say I either know from their diet assessment that they don't drink very much because I'll ask people to tell me what they drink in a day and we'll work together and figure out the ounces that that is. I'll show them a typical glass or something and they'll they'll tell me about that. Or if I have the urine collection and it shows volume under two liters, then I will say we need to increase your fluid intake. And I don't think there's a one size fits all approach to everyone. People are of different body sizes. That means they have different body surface areas. And that means that a larger person is going to lose more fluids through their skin than a smaller person. And people have different consistency of their bowel movements. Some are more watery than others. And we exhale water. So not all the things we drink goes right through our kidneys. So I'll somewhat target the fluid intake to the size of the person, but in general, we know that in order to produce, let's say, at least two liters of urine, one has to usually drink at least three liters of fluids. So I'll kind of target you know, that as a good goal or more if I want the patient to produce more urine. I might go higher. The patient is a very aggressive athlete. I can presume that they would sweat a lot. They'll need to replace even more. And then as far as particular fluids, I think a lot of patients feel like we are only talking about water. And I have a lot of patients who don't like water or who can't drink the water at their homes because of contamination or they have well water that they don't drink or something. And so I think it's important for us not only to help people identify the amount of fluids they should drink, but also which fluids. And I think we can be generous and, and very broad and tell patients basically all fluids count, 
Of course, we want you to drink as many low sugar, low calorie, low alcohol beverages as possible, but there's even room for those things as well. So I've worked with patients to figure out ways to flavor their waters with fruit or vegetables or to use water alternatives. And I work a lot with patients on scheduling their fluid intake. A lot of people don't seem to respond to thirst. And so sometimes it requires using your cell phone to beep at you every couple of hours to drink. Or I do some techniques like give people rubber bands to wear around their wrist, five rubber bands. And then I'll give them a water bottle and I'll say, every time you finish one of these, take off a rubber band. And by the end of the day, they should all be gone or, you know, you still have some drinking to do. So I think there's a lot of ways we can be creative about fluids and very targeted. Hard water, soft water, alkaline water. Is the type of water important? In general, I would say no. All waters are fluids and they will all contribute to urine output. I think if I reframe the question a little bit, it's patients always want to know what's the best water, you know, like magical thinking, like what's the best thing I should drink? And I always say all of them. There is evidence that hard water, because of the minerals that it contains, oftentimes magnesium is one of those, actually can prevent kidney stones. I'm not sure that it alone can do so. And of course, it would, de it would depend on the type of stone the patient was forming. But so I think there's benefits of hard water. There's concern about soft water because it might contain sodium chloride. Well, not really as much as people have thought or people think. There's evidence. People have looked at it and measured it. And there's very small amount of sodium in soft water in, the, in most cases. And then alkaline waters, it depends on how the water is made alkaline. If the water has been made alkaline because of the addition of sodium bicarbonate or some other bicarbonate or bicarbonate precursor, then that could be very beneficial for patients who, who need to increase their alkaline load of their diet and what's the alkaline load of the, that the kidneys experience. But other waters that are made alkaline pH, but they don't have those ingredients in them, aren't going to do any. They're not magical. They're not special in any way. For sodium, is 1,500 milligrams your target? So that's pretty low. Uh, sodium uh, is usually the general ballpark uh, milligrams per day that is recommended by the USDA and other authorities is generally 23 to 2400 milligrams of sodium. 1500 is often touted for congestive heart failure, but there are some studies, if you look in the literature, that suggest that there are no added benefits to eating that little sodium. And now it depends on the study's outcomes and what they were looking at and what they were measuring. But I don't think people have to be quite that restrictive. I think that we can, again, take this somewhat individually. The main concern with sodium in the form of sodium chloride in particular is that it may induce hypercalciuria because of the, the expansion of extracellular volume that it creates. But not every patient has hypercalciuria. Even patients with high salt intakes, I might not place that a high priority on their diet recommendations unless they also have hypercalciuria. So yes, I think most people need to restrict their sodium, their salt, and I work with a lot of patients to do that, but it's not always the number one priority for everyone. For uric acid, portion size or moderation, I think is critical for animal protein. Is there a difference between red meat, white meat, fish, eggs, or is it all the same? It all boils down to portion control. That's a hot topic. It's a hot topic in chronic kidney disease, which is not related to kidney stones necessarily. But 
what I think we're real or learning from that burgeoning literature is that not all proteins are the same. In fact, plant proteins, even though they're made up of some of the same amino acids that animal derived proteins are, don't exert the same effect in the body, but particularly on the kidneys. And that's what we're primarily concerned with. So having said that, I'll just kind of address protein in general. I do think it's important that people not overeat protein. I don't know that we need to restrict protein in all cases, other than to promote kidney health, it might be wise to do so. But as far as which proteins in particular might be associated with uric acid stones, we're looking at two things. We're looking at proteins that can increase the body's production or synthesis of uric acid. But more importantly, actually, for uric acid stones, we're looking at protein food sources that can reduce the urine pH, making it more acidic, because that's when uric acid stones will form. That's when they'll, that's when uric acid precipitates from urine. And to your question about red meat, is it different than poultry or fish? It's not different. They all have the same ability to produce this acid load and lower urine pH. They're not all equal with respect to promoting uric acid biosynthesis. Do eggs uh, decrease the pH too? It's controversial or it's you'll find contradictory evidence. The best evidence I think came from Thomas Reamer and his group many years ago now, which showed, and this is kind of contrary to how we might think of it, that egg yolks are actually the acidogenic part of the egg and not the whites. Now that's to me, a little bit of a contradictory because the white is where the protein is. But it turns out the explanation that I've been that I've read is that the matrix, so the matrix of foods is very important. And that's kind of why not all proteins are equal, even though they might have the same amino acid lineup. The matrix in which they're enveloped, the other constituents of that food, whether it be plant or animal derived, is important. And it turns out that egg whites, even though that's the protein part of the egg, have compounds in them. I don't know what they are offhand, but they have compounds in them that make the whites of the egg not acidogenic like the yolk is. When you mention the matrix of foods, I understand the collagen in meat can also be lithogenic for a different reason. Is that right? Yes. And you're obviously a reader of current literature. For people who form oxalate stones or who have hyperoxaluria, we used to think very narrowly about what might contribute to that. But now we know that collagen is actually something that I would call an oxalate precursor. And there are some amino acids that have this capability as well. And what that means is when we eat those foods, collagen, for example, it can be used as substrate for the production of more oxalate in the human body. And of course, oxalate, when it's produced inside the body, has no use that we know of. And so it must be excreted. If not excreted, it can be deposited in soft tissue where it can have some serious problems. But when it's excreted in urine, of course, we get hyperoxaluria, which then is capable of forming stones. So collagen is one of those, I'll call it a, a precursor to oxalate foods that we see people consuming. And are there specific types of meats or cuts of meats that are higher in collagen? Yes. Um, and I don't know offhand which those are, but I do know that there are. Interestingly, the fattier meats are probably going to have less collagen than some of the less fatty meats. But I'd want to read up on that before I gave any definitive advice about that. In general, I would say if you're consistently consuming a moderate amount of meat, by moderate, I mean, depending on your body size, 
you know, maybe six ounces, maybe eight ounces if you're a larger size, maybe four ounces if you're smaller a day. I don't think there's any concern for collagen in that sense. But I do think there might be a concern for collagen when it comes to the collagen supplements that so many people are taking these days. And that has not been very well studied, though I know some people currently studying that, waiting for the results very eagerly. And Dr. Peniston, uh, speaking of oxalates, I know you've looked into where oxalates come in the Western diet. What did you find? Oxalate is mainly found in plant foods, ox- preformed oxalate, I'll say. These, these oxalate precursors we were just talking about can be found in many foods of animal origin. But oxalate itself, the preformed oxalate is usually found in plant foods because it is produced by plants to help them maintain homeostasis for calcium. So calcium and oxalate bind in the plant and it allows the plant to store calcium so that in times of uh, deficient calcium, say in the soil, it can liberate that calcium and use it. And I think there may be also oxalate in the soil and bacteria. That's a separate thing. So oxalate in the soil. So anyway, plant foods are considered major sources of oxalate. But certain plant foods have a lot more oxalate than others. And the particular ones that people often cite are spinach. Not all leafy greens, but spinach for sure has a lot of oxalate in it. And then some of the potatoes and sweet potatoes, some beans. Rhubarb is kind of a a strange food that seems to have that does have a lot of oxalate. And beets is another one. But practically all fruits and vegetables have a little bit of oxalate. But as far as the super high oxalate foods, those are mainly the ones that I mentioned. And then some of the whole grains and nuts and seeds. And these, of course, are also plant direct plant foods. And so they can be very high sources of oxalate as well. So any specific grains beyond whole grains that you would say try to minimize or avoid? Well, so bulgur, for example, is very high in oxalate. And most whole grains, that is to say the unrefined, the whole, the brand, everything in them, most will have quite a lot of oxalate. Soy does, wheat does wheat berries do. So it's pretty much all whole grains. Bulgur, I know, is one of the the highest ones. But I wouldn't say that people necessarily need to avoid those foods or avoid any food that's high in oxalate. And the reason is because we can control the amount of oxalate that our body absorbs, that, that is absorbed from our gastrointestinal tract. So I don't often tell people that they have to live for for the rest of their lives without eating oatmeal or bulgur again or spinach again um, because of this power that we know of to modify the bioavailability of oxalate. So I know oxalate gets a bad rap and the foods that are high in oxalate, you know, get a bad rap. But let's remember that those foods are often coincidentally the highest in magnesium and for fiber and for phytate and antioxidants, all of which can prevent stones. So modulating the absorption of oxalate, what do you recommend? The bioavailability of nutrients is something that dietitians know very well. We do it all the time. And what that simply means is bioavailability is how available something is to you. And if it's something you have eaten, then to be bioavailable, it must be absorbed from the gastrointestinal tract so that it can be in circulation in the bloodstream. So dietitians often try to manipulate the bioavailability of things. Usually we're trying to increase the bioavailability of certain nutrients like iron. You know, for people that need more iron in their foods, we'll tell them you can increase the bioavailability of plant iron, which plant irons are not that well absorbed, but we can better absorb them 
when we have concurrent consumption of vitamin C or foods that contain vitamin C. Well, with oxalate, we're trying to do just the opposite. We want to reduce the bioavailability or absorption of oxalate. And we do this in a very effective way, which is we advocate the simultaneous consumption of foods or beverages that contain calcium. Because when the calcium and the oxalate are consumed at the same time, much of them, not all of all of them, but they will tend to bind in the gastrointestinal tract, just as they do in the urine. And when they bind together in the intestinal tract, they form an insoluble complex, a stone, if you will, but you can't absorb it. And so it simply is eliminated in your stool. So that's a technique that we can use for people with really high oxalate consumption, whose diets are really probably pretty healthy and we don't wanna maybe alter too much. So we would simply advocate a good amount of calcium at each eating occasion or meal. What are some of your favorite non-dairy alternatives for that calcium that you need to prevent oxalate absorption? You know, when I first started practicing clinical dietetics 22 years ago, because I started while I was in grad school, there was hardly anything. And so my patients who were lactose intolerant or milk protein allergy had very little to choose from other than calcium supplements. And there wasn't even as many of those different kinds of formulations as there are now. Well, Everybody knows now that there are many non-dairy sources of calcium, and that's it's been a real boon for patients with lactose intolerance, for vegetarians and vegans, or just anyone else who wants to avoid dairy. And what I'm talking about is the plethora of plant-based milks that we see in our refrigerated sections of our grocery stores everywhere. We see soy milk, we see rice milk, oat milk, almond milk, cashew milk, there's flax milk, I've seen hemp milk. Um, there's probably others I haven't even bothered to name. There's coconut milk. So there are many of these and too many of them, the manufacturers have added calcium because they realize that they can market it and sell more of the product to people that need calcium, which we all do, but who don't want to get it from dairy. And there are also fortified uh, calcium fortified juices. I know of orange juice and cranberry juice in particular, there may be others, but there are now many more non-dairy calcium sources to choose from than there were before. Who are some of your most challenging patients in terms of balancing their stone risk with their other medical conditions? Is it the diabetic who's trying to lose weight? Is it the patient with inflammatory bowel disease? What are some of the more challenging scenarios that you find it makes it harder for patients to follow a diet that prevents stones? That's a good question. We see so many complex patients in our practice. I can name a, a few scenarios. One is after gastric bypass, a lot of patients develop hyperoxaluria and they have other stone promoting factors as well going on. Many of them, because of the reduced gastric volume, are not drinking very much because they need to prioritize the consumption of protein and they have so little gastric volume that they really can't eat or drink very much. So we often see these patients not only with low urine volume, but then high urine oxalate. And that's because the gastric bypass procedure is malabsorptive, which means that people essentially are, are excreting a lot of calcium in their stool. And its transit time in the gut is very short. It's very low. And so there's not enough time for calcium to bind with oxalate that patients may be eating and thereby contributing to more oxalate in the urine. But there may be other sources of oxalate in these patients as well. Sometimes we can get them down to really low oxalate diets and, and have them using lots of calcium and they'll still have high urine oxalate. And there are some studies in rats 
a colleague at University of Florida has done some of this work and others have as well, which shows that there might be other changes from gastric bypass that potentially induce the liberation of oxalate from fat stores, if that's where they were, because some of these patients continue to have high urine oxalate despite our best efforts. So that's a problem. Other patients are others with with malabsorptive diseases like Crohn's. Some really serious Crohn's patients or ulcerative colitis have that same problem of malabsorption that I just talked about. And oftentimes their urine oxalate can be very difficult to control even when they're hardly eating any oxalate at all. So that's frustrating. And of course, if they're vomiting or if they have a lot of stool, loose stools, fluid in their stools, they can't possibly be drinking enough to compensate for that. I would say another category of patients who are kind of frustrated, I would say, are people who are on medications like topiramate. Topiramate is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. It's very effectively used to combat migraines. And these patients often have really, really low urine citrate. And sometimes it's very difficult to raise that urine citrate. That's the effect of that medication. And the frustrating part for us is that this medication seems to work so well for migraines that we've had patients say, look, these two things are both bad, but I like the fact that my migraines are being controlled. Um, we still don't want them to form stones. And so sometimes it's very frustrating that they've given up one health problem only to form another. But we work really hard with them on trying to alkalinize their urine, get more citrate, and then increase their fluids. Those are just some examples. Um, I'm sure you have some in your practice, too, that are pretty hard to treat. What would you say are the, the most difficult patients? Well, I think many of the things that diabetics are recommended, uh, eating more nuts, trying to find alternative sources for protein, there often tends to be a bit of conflict in terms of what we're recommending and what they have been told to do. Eating more fruits, I think, often is something that's not recommended for diabetics. So uh, there tends to be a bit of a, a balancing act when it comes to those patients. I agree. And I tell patients with diabetes that there is no reason why we can't converge or integrate stone prevention and diabetes diets, but it is hard for the reasons you mentioned. But I think it can be done. And I think, for example, fruits, a lot of people with diabetes think they can't have fruits, but many dietitians can probably attest to this, that patients can eat fruits if they have diabetes, but usually not by themselves. When you eat fruit with a meal, it tends not to have that same effect quickly on blood glucose that it does when you eat the fruit by itself. So there are ways, and, and maybe that's where a good diabetes dietitian can help you uh, with those patients, you know, in integrating those recommendations. I think another group are people that are losing weight with the ketogenic diet. And we also are a big center at UW Wisconsin or UW Madison for ketogenic diet for seizures. We have an entire uh, nutritional therapy team dedicated to this. And those patients have very acidic urines usually because they're eating a lot of protein and their diets are very high for acid load. So oftentimes we're using over-the-counter or other types of alkaline strategies because they can't stop the ketogenic diet, especially if it's for seizures. So that's a challenging problem to work through sometimes. Have there been any studies looking at the effect of intermittent fasting on stone risk? That's a good question. Uh, gosh. I don't think so, but I can't say for sure. There's been a lot of studies about intermittent fasting on its effect on weight loss, on longevity, 
and diabetes control. And it has it seems to have some pretty miraculous type effects, although I caution anyone against magical thinking and and that any diet is going to be magical. The, the best diet for patients, especially if it's for weight loss, is the one that works for them. And for some people, intermittent fasting isn't a good way for their for their families or, or a good you know lifestyle. But for others, it can be used. But that's a really good question. Does does the restriction of eating to certain windows of the day decrease or increase stone risk? I would say if they're drinking throughout the day, including during their non-eating times, that that's a plus. But I don't know of any studies. I'm sure there's. I'm sure somebody's working on one right now. Well, you mentioned that the best diet to lose weight is the one that works for you. But if we knew that, we wouldn't need the diet. So if a patient was to <laughs> ask point. you, what's the most, what's the healthiest diet currently that you'd recommend to lose weight and hopefully not increase my risk for stones, what would you recommend? You know, my response is probably the least appealing sort of response. It, it's nothing, nothing magical. It's cutting your calories down to the minimum needed to, to either maintain or lose weight. And it's it's not as simple always as energy in energy out. That's used to be what we what we thought. It's what I was taught. But we now know that people metabolize the same foods differently. So there are studies that show that that people eating the same diets, and these are controlled. You know, in in hospital studies, they don't lose the same amount of weight. They don't burn the same amount of calories. It's very intriguing, and it gives me it gives a lot of us you know some sort of explanation for why there are some patients who simply can't lose weight or have a hard time losing it. But I do still believe that there's a lot to be said for minimizing your caloric intake and increasing your physical activity. And so it takes some lifestyle changes and willpower. It takes changes in buying habits, not having certain foods in your cupboard, in your refrigerator, not eating maybe between meals, Maybe intermittent fasting, there is something to that or, or at least something to a narrower window of eating. You don't have to practice intermittent fasting to simply eat during a certain window of the day. And then I do think it's different for people. So there are some people who might maybe lose weight only if they exercise really hard or lift weights or something. Other people might be able to do it with diet alone. It's one of the hardest things to counsel people on. I don't specialize in it. I will send a lot of my patients who need to lose weight or want to, to my colleagues who specialize in weight loss. There's a lot of science behind that I don't necessarily keep up on. Well, Dr. Patterson, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to share your expertise. You've given us a lot of food for thought. You've also given us some uncertainties to chew on. So thank you again. And to our audience, bon appetit. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross. And Ness Smith Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. With support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.